<clears throat> one, two, one, two. This is a Romy cast. Never get tired of being Beatles. I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar. Oh, is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rescue. Take 12. Very excited. Can we just have a little less guitar in here? Oh, no, 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 that John finally got just after that, and we both of us do what we want to do, do what we want to do. If you think it was good, keep it if you don't scrap it. Yeah, it's not bad that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Join me and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore as we do around here and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. My guest on this episode is Canadian East Coast musician Chris Pico, who has a great new album out called Split Down the Middle, which we will talk about. As well, we'll be talking about his choice of a Beatles album, 1964's Beatles for Sale, an underrated album uh, for many people, although if you listen to this podcast, probably not you. You probably like it just fine, as I do, as he does, and we'll hear more about that in a moment. Uh, the website for this podcast, by the way, is romicast.com. If you head there, you can find each and every episode that we have done so far. This is episode 14 of series three. You can find all of the episodes from series one and series two and all the other ones from series three at the website or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. You know, Chris Pico is an interesting guy. I hadn't met him until I had a chance to sit down and, and do an interview with him. His band, Long Distance Runners, I came to find out, was a staple on the East Coast music scene for several years. The band had several East Coast Music Award nominations to its credit, as well as a Juno Award nomination in 2016. I looked that up, and it was interesting. What got them the nomination, the Juno nomination, was the spectacular artwork for their Elements album. Album, which is the last album that they have put out as this is being recorded. It was put out several years ago. Anyway, we'll talk about that artwork later on in the podcast. Uh, the band then went on hiatus, uh, and it was not long after they released that aforementioned album, Elements. For Chris, it was time to think of a solo album. I guess the idea had been sort of percolating around in his head for a while. Uh, cue a band hiatus, cue the pandemic, and all of a sudden, hey, this might be time to make a solo album. You can find out what Chris is up to at his website, chrispico.ca. That is uh, Chris, C-H-R-I-S, Pico, P-I-C-C-O, .ca. There are links at that site to his videos on YouTube as well as all of his music on Bandcamp and all of the streaming platforms. And uh, you can also 
uh, order a copy of his great new album, Split Down the Middle. So, Chris, it's great to see you, great to meet you, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about the Beatles. Well, thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be here. It is, uh, it, it, it's great to have you here. And I want to talk, we will talk about your new record that is out, uh, about your career as well. But again, something I like to ask people off the get-go, uh, how did you stumble onto the Beatles? When do you, what's your first memory of the Beatles in your musical life? My first memory, um, goes back to 19, I think, well, I could say 1987, but, uh, <laughs> I think maybe earlier with my Chipmunks record that I got, <laughs> the Beatles Chipmunks record. Uh, but I realized later that the Beatles were a real band. So no, but later, about 1987 was the 20th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper, as we know. And uh, I, I was 11 years old. And uh, I remember, I think it was just a lot of media, a lot of, a lot of radio was playing Sgt. Pepper at the time. So I went to Fred's Records down on Water Street, uh, Duckworth Street in St. John's, and uh, I got the tape Sgt. Pepper, and that was my introduction. And uh, from there, it was just collecting. I was a freak after that. Were you a musician at that time? No, I piano lessons at eight years old, but no, the Beatles got me into guitar about a year later. Start playing. Well, before we jump into the album uh, you've chosen, Beatles for Sale, uh, tell me why you chose this one. Well, it's an over, you know, an overlooked record. It's probably seen as, you know, people say it's their weakest record. You know, I, I don't think they ha they have a a bad record, okay? But you know, you look in the books, you read the books. It's like, you know, it's known as well. Maybe it was the quickest. They had to slap this one together. But I'm, it's still an impressive record, and there's a lot of milestones on this record. I think it gets overlooked sometimes, so I still think it's a gem of a record. Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree. Like when when a lot of people, oh, this was one they just kind of threw together, and and uh, you know it's not as good as some of their others. But man, and and we'll get to them. You go through like some of the tracks are just outstanding. I'll put them up against anything they've done. Be, uh, like no reply, yeah. great song. No reply, babies in black. I love that tune. Uh, what you're doing, you know, it's McCartney doing his, uh, you know, doing his belters, you know. Um, I, uh, rock and roll music, you know, John Lennon, uh, you know, you get that live, you get their live show, you get a part of that from 1964, and you get their studio songs. So that's, uh, I like the mix of the record. I like the, you know, you get that live vibe going on, and you also get or new tracks, you know? All right, well, before we jump into it, uh, let's, uh, I just like to put things in a little bit of context as to what was going on in the Beatles world. So the Beatles for Sale is the Beatles' fourth album. It was recorded and released at the absolute height of Beatlemania. They were busy boys. So they recorded and released two albums, A Hard Day's Night, which came out in July of 1964, and Beatles for Sale, which was released in the UK on December 4th, 1964. So they are working hard. That year, they also recorded three standalone singles or B-sides. Uh, as you probably know, you know the Beatles early in their career and throughout most of it actually, were loath to put a single on an album, unlike the way things worked in North America and, and the way they still work. So those were extra things they had to do. Uh, things we said today was the B-side to A Hard Day's Night. I Feel Fine was never on an album backed with She's a Woman. There was also an EP that came out in 1964 with four non-album tracks, Long Tall Sally, I Call Your Name, Slow Down, and Matchbox. 
songs. Uh, the Beatles also played 131 shows during a couple of tours of the UK, a mini tour and a major tour of the USA and Canada, a residency in Paris, a European tour, and a tour that took in Hong Kong, Australia, and New Zealand. They were moving. (laughs) So during March and April of 1964, they were both shooting the A Hard Day's Night movie around London and at Twickenham Film Studios and continuing to work on songs for the album. Uh, 1964 was also the year that they broke America. First appearing on the Ed Sullivan Show on February 9th. They played a few dates during that visit to the U.S., but it was their return later that year in August and September uh, to play shows goes all over the USA and a couple here in Canada that really saw them cement their status as massive touring superstars. Recording Beatles for Sale didn't take long. Basically, it was our stage show with some new songs. Those are the recollections of Paul McCartney and the Beatles anthology. So that stage show, Chris, that McCartney is referring to isn't the one they did during their U.S. tours when no one could hear them play. He's referring to when they were a working, playing band, crisscrossing the U.K., playing in clubs, and also playing extended residences in Hamburg, Germany, where they'd play for hours and hours that was their apprenticeship tell me about your musical apprenticeship my musical apprenticeship i guess it would be the the bars in st john's the little hole in the walls you know back in the 90s uh i moved myself up here back in 99 to go to humber college Oh yeah, yeah. So I, I was did I, I did a jazz uh, I did jazz guitar and uh, I was big into uh, hanging out at the jazz bars at the time also. So you know down at the uh, uh, you know Montreal Bistro and places like that. And from there I worked I started working on my folk music on my rock music and playing the local bars here in Toronto. So I really got my feet wet here in Toronto, Cameron House and Free Times Cafe, places like that. The Cloak and Dagger, you know, all the pubs. So I'm back here now this week, just uh, it's been a few years since COVID. Yeah. And I'm finally back home here to do a show and I'm, it's all coming back to me now, all the little bars and most of them are still here, which I'm happy to see. But uh, yeah, a lot of my musical apprenticeship happened right here in Toronto. Do, do, you, do you think that that apprenticeship, the opportunity for that still exists in the music industry today because it has changed so much and every musician worth his or her salt who I've spoken to went through the kind of thing you're talking about but I've also heard them say I feel badly for the younger musicians now because what I did doesn't exist anymore what do you think about that well you know I I think it was kind of hard when I came in also I mean I, I think I'm in that middle generation here coming up through yeah how old the are you? 90s I'm 47 okay so I hear stories from other Newfoundland musicians uh, from the boomer generation guys now are in their 60s and 70s and they could go out and play all over Newfoundland back in the 70s and even into the 80s, making a living, having a good career. And then, you know, obviously touring Canada. And, uh, but I, I got to say, through the late 90s and 2000s, it was definitely uh, small communities kind of dried up and uh, it became more and more difficult. I think uh, another reason why I had to go to Toronto and try to check things out up here. And so touring, Can- you know, touring Eastern Canada and throughout... Uh, it's definitely gotten tougher. It must be, I mean, compared to what it was in the 70s. And I would have 
So I would imagine. Yeah. So just back to the Beatles uh, and, and Beatles for Sale before we dive into the first track. But as was usually the case, the album contained 14 tracks, all of their, you know, eight of which were Lennon-McCartney tracks. There were six cover versions, all songs that, as I referenced, they were used to playing live. In the UK, the album had an, at the time, unprecedented 750,000 advance orders. That's just in the UK. When it was released, it was an instant chart topper, replacing a hard day's night is the number one album it stayed there for seven straight weeks in the uk charts it was the uk uh, in the charts for a total of 46 weeks as per chartmasters.org which i use to track sales it is the second lowest selling album of all the beatles original catalog as of 2015 so a few years back global physical sales of the album 5.7 million uh the most recent streaming figures i have the album has been streamed over 56 million times the most streamed track on the album what would you guess if you're guessing the most streamed on this one it is weak nailed it (laughs) right off the bat 23 million streams for eight days a week well done uh such was the beatles work output and desire and or pressure to get more albums out there that on september 29th 1964 just eight days after they get back from their u.s tour where they played 32 shows in 33 days they're back in emi studios to continue working on what was to become beatles for sale uh they'd started work on some of the tracks back in august but the bulk of the record was recorded between september 29th and october 26th and recorded ordered around TV appearances as well as tour dates in the UK. Uh, they started had to start work on an album to be released for the Christmas season. So with that, we take it out of the uh, out of the vinyl jacket, put it on our virtual turntable, and it is side one, cut one, no reply. This happened once before when I came to your door, no reply. They said it wasn't you. But I saw you peep through your window I saw the light I saw the light I know that you saw me As I looked up to see your face It happened once before I came through your door Um... Love no reply. <laughs> I went, no, no. I can, uh, you want me to get my guitar? Get, yeah, let's get the guitar <laughs> yeah. and I'll warm up. Um, so this album, yeah, it starts off no reply. You know, John Lennon, uh, the lead vocal. Um, so right away, it's got that morose. Uh, it's a little more morose than the, uh, the, the I want to, you know, uh, she loves you. And yep. right. So we go from no reply, kicking it off. Um, I mean, Lennon's, I just love that blistering, that, that, in his throat, you know, he's just got, you can hear that he's just off the road. This happened once before. Felt, you know, he's got yeah. that good tone and he, he's the leader. He's still the leader of the Beatles at this point, yes. I think. I know, you know, McCartney, you know, uh, they shared it. They shared it, but I, you still feel like Lennon was the big, you know, he was the, uh, he was the sure. oldest guy in the band and he was the leader at that point. And he kicks it off with the, with that gutso, yeah. Uh, and I really... Uh, uh, yeah, I love the song. Yeah. Uh, it's a good one. Good harmonies and a great story. You know, it's a story song. You know, looking through the window at the girl uh, uh, pick up the phone and he's not feeling too good about himself. Uh, so, 
I, I, I love uh, John Lennon's recollections in an interview that he gave in 1980. He says, that's my song. Dick James, the publisher, said, that's the first complete song you've written where it resolves itself. You know, with a complete story. It was my version of Silhouette's. I had the image of walking down the street and seeing her silhouetted in the window and not answering the phone. Uh, although he added in the interview, I never called a girl on the phone in my life because phones weren't a part of the English child's life. But that's that's what he had in mind. It was originally written uh, for another Brian Epstein recording artist, Tommy Quickly. Uh, and uh, I actually, I've never heard his version of the song. Uh, the version on the album was recorded in a single session on September 30th between 6.30 and 10.30 at night. Uh, and to your point, John's voice was starting to lag a little bit after a long couple of days in the studio. And that's why McCartney takes the high harmonies behind Lennon's vocal. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, wow. that's, that's what okay. he does. Uh, and The demo had a bit of a bossa nova feel to it. And, and, and it's interesting when you look back because... The song was written probably around spring of 1964, and I don't know if you're familiar with this album, but that was around the time the Getz Gilberto album came out. That's Stan Getz and Yao Gilberto. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the big song off of that was The Girl from Ipanema. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. So a, that was a top 30 hit in the UK, so they undoubtedly would have heard that, right. I, I would think. Right, so I mean, they were like sponges, right? Yeah. I mean, and I also just read that Lennon called, I mean, we'll get into this, I'm sure, too, but you kind of call this their country and Western album. Oh, yeah, I've never heard that. Yeah, and they, they had just gotten back from, you know, and they say maybe because, you know, they were traveling the states, traveling southern states, listening to the car radio, listening to country and Western, American radio. I mean, and yes, Ringo was a big country Western fan before that, but I think the influence is just like one month later, you know, now we're listening, oh, we heard that track, and they're, they're forced to write songs on the fly a couple of weeks and you got to have another record, uh, uh, another couple of tracks for the record. So I'm sure like a sponge just taking up what was on the radio at the time. Well, it's an early Lennon, you referred to this, it's, it's a, an early Lennon introspective song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he seemed to start transitioning to that, like a, you know, I'm a loser, I don't want to spoil the party, this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, great harmonies from McCartney. Um, I, I'm not as musical as you, but I think you talked about earlier kind of the darkness of the song. Mm-hmm. And I love how it ends with it, you know, there's no reply. There never will be a reply. And then they ring it out on that, I think it's a C major chord. No reply. No reply. Yeah, maybe the add nine chord, yeah. that Beatle okay. chord, maybe you'd call it, right? Yeah, they, they, they would do that on um, uh, She Loves You uh, yeah. and songs like that, right? You'd get that. Oh, that's the Beatle chord, you know, and, that pretty uh, jazzy chord. And, and, and then that McCartney harmony at the end, you know, mm-hmm. no reply. Oh, I just love that. Yeah. I, that's, I love yeah, that. Yeah, so that's the magic of the Beatles. They, you know, they took pop tunes and took it to another level, I think. Uh, the, you also have that dry <sighs> snare drum sound on this, the really, which is achieved by, you know, placing the tea towel over top of the snare. Um, and uh, they've been, you know, using that trick. A lot of people think that didn't come in till, till later, mm-hmm. but Ringo was using that as far back as, okay. as this time. Yeah, so. Uh, cut number two. We go right from No Reply to another Lennon introspective song. I'm a loser. I'm a loser. 
And I'm not what I appear to be Of all the love I have won or have lost There is one love I should never have crossed She was a girl in a million, my friend I should have known she would win in the end Now this is where you really heard Dylan I think the influence of Bob Dylan on this track And, and, and Lennon you know, uh, writing emotional lyrics, not just from a boy-girl point of view, but putting yourself into the song, putting your personality into the song. And, th and that's the big thing about this record. I start to feel that about, especially Lennon's writing. So what was it? That summer on tour in New York, they met Bob Dylan for the first time. And, and as we all know, any Beatle fan knows that uh, he introduced them to marijuana. And... Uh, you can kind of feel that influence too coming out in, in the introspective lyrics of I'm a Loser and the harmonica and, and, and the, just the arrangement. It's got that Bob Dylan kind of vibe, but it also influenced Dylan to be, to go electric also when he heard I'm a Loser. So it's all reciprocated. It was just a, there's so much pollination, cross-pollination going on at that time. Uh, Lennon was hanging out as well. Uh, he, they, they'd met Dylan and he was also hanging out in London a lot with uh, Eric Burden. Of, of the animals who'd recorded a couple of Dylan songs, House of the Rising Sun and Baby Let Me Take You Home uh, on their debut record. Uh, and also, uh, you know, fellow Dylan fan, you know, Mick Jagger was a big Dylan fan. So I imagine there was a lot of Bob Dylan talk around this time. Uh, and it comes out. Um, and Lennon says, uh, this is a quote from an interview he did, I'm a loser as me in my Dylan period because the word clown is in it. Uh, I objected to the word clown because that was always artsy-fartsy, but Dylan had used it, so I thought it was all right, and it rhymed with whatever I was doing. So, <laughs> Right? You needed that reassurance that, okay, well, if Dylan... Dylan was kind of the guiding light, I think, for, that, for a lot of those guys at the time. Um, yeah. Uh, Four-line verse chorus, no middle eight, which is very folk music-y. Right. I think. Yeah. 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 It wasn't your typical pop song for yeah. the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, very folk song, ballad-like. Uh, it features that great walking bass by McCartney. You know, boom, 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 boom. Yeah, 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 yeah that's right. You know, probably is Hofner. Um, yeah, definitely. Now, now, which leads me to this. McCartney, a multi-instrumentalist, as you know, mm -hmm. uh, as are... You, <laughs> as you know. Uh, so on your solo record out now, Split Down the Middle, I see that you had uh, Tyler Chard play some drums and Craig Follett plays bass on three of the 12 tracks that sure. I can see. Yep. You play everything else. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to do it this way out of, well, it was, it was a lot of reasons. I guess it was uh, a challenge and it was something... Uh, I hadn't done before, and it was a lot of time late at night working at it when the kids were asleep to get this record done. So I did a lot of it at home before I took it into the studio. So it gave me a chance to experiment more with my, and, and you know, experiment with what I had around the house, uh, you know, get my bass chops back up, piano. Electric guitar, you know, it was, it was great. It was so, great so, did, I was going to say, so did, did you find did you find it arduous or did you find it liberating to be able liberating? To, you did, eh? Yeah, yeah. Because uh, confidence is something a musician, you know, you're fighting with all the time. Am I, you know, can I really pull this off? Can I play lead guitar anymore? Can I, you know, I, I've been working as a songwriter and kind of let 
my guitar chops probably go to the wayside and uh, lots of different things. You know, you just work on your vocal, you work on your song arrangements. And I, I felt like I wanted to challenge myself. Like, I can do this. I can, why don't I do a record where I can play, where I play the guitar parts that, that I arranged and I wrote? And, and it was also out of necessity that I didn't have the guys to come over at any time of the night and, and do this for me. So I just got at it myself and got it done. Well, I heard you say in another interview that this album was about five years in the making uh, mm. after Long Distance Runners. Uh, and I want to give them props here uh, with, you know, you, Matt Hender, Ilya Nickel, uh, and uh, Dickie Strickland. Yeah, that was the lineup uh, at the end. Yeah. You, guys, you guys went on hiatus. Um, so are, are some of the songs three, four, or five years old? And if so, how much did they change either structure or meaning from the time you wrote them to the time you laid them down on the album? Right, like... Time Changes Everything, that song been bouncing around for a while, and that was a folky song. And then, uh, you know, it turned out to be a synth-heavy pop song on, on the records. took songs that I thought were probably not, uh, uh, I thought could be for more of a folk record and turn them to a pop song and, 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 and they fit on this record. So I had a lot of fun taking older, you know, some older tunes, rearranging them, rewriting them and uh, fitting them together on this 12 track record. Uh, did any song meanings change and not just arrangements? I find that happens later when I listen back and actually appreciate, listen back to the record later. I start to see the record come together as a whole once it's actually done. You don't really, when I'm writing, I'm just kind of, whatever's coming out, uh, you start to see the themes kind of intertwining between the tracks and that's always a nice surprise, but I don't usually go into it intending it to turn out that way. Maybe you get lucky and it looks like, oh, there is a theme, you know, split down the middle, taking sides, trying to make up your mind and... <laughs> yeah. Well, what side are we on here? You know, are we going to come together? Are we going to like split apart here? Are we for be- sure, this, the theme on, on, on split down the middle. Like yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. So, so, and, and just before we get back to the Beatles, I mean, mm-hmm. did, you, did you want to do a solo record because you felt constricted by being in the band? Uh, and, and as an example, I'll give you Radiohead, who, mm-hmm. you know, they still come together. Radiohead will do a Radiohead album. They haven't done one for a few years, but all the guys go off and, you know, the, uh, Tom York has a solo project, uh, and they all. Uh, 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 there's uh, one of them arranges uh, Johnny, uh, yeah, Johnny Greenwood. Yeah, or, uh, arranges for films, mm-hmm. so they have other stuff doing, but they kind of go back into the Radiohead universe every once in a while. What about you? Right. Well, you know, the the guys in the band, Dicky, uh, he's just putting a record out now. Matt just put a record out last a couple, two years ago, and he has a new one coming out. And actually, when I we're, we're in talks of doing a reunion show at the end of the year. So, 
you know, we went on a little break. It was kind of sad. I was, we just put the record out and bands are a tough thing to keep together. Oh yeah. But you know, we're all on good terms and you know, I had to go out and do a solo record because the band wasn't doing anything at the time. Everybody wanted a break, do their own thing. I took a couple of years, you know, trying to figure it out. We had another baby, Paula and I, and, uh, life. you know, life, life. man, I just yeah. trying to, you know, trying to work and pay the bills and trying to keep my music career alive. I mean, that's the reality of it. Yeah. And, and, I and just, all, the, all the shit with the pandemic. Yeah. And then the pandemic came and, and I, I was like, I got to get this record out. I got to, yeah. I wasn't feeling myself without having a music career because I kind of put it on hold for a couple of years and I wasn't feeling, I just didn't feel myself not living like that. And now, you know, I finished, followed through on the record, finished it. And, uh, you know, uh, now here I am trying to, you know, trying to, trying to kickstart it again. No, you know? Chris, I, I get it a hundred percent. I mean, different world, but I get it. If, yeah. you, if you're, I get it that you're, you're an artist, you're a creative person. You got to create, uh, mm -hmm. I'm a broadcaster. I got to broadcast, right. you know, whether it's a podcast or a hockey game or whatever, it's part of you. That's right. You know, so I get it. I get it completely. You, you explained it really well. Uh, so from, I'm a loser, we go to, uh, I, I think you mentioned this in your opening comments, maybe babies in black, yeah. which was the first song that they recorded for the album completed in one single session. I just see like a woman in a veil, you know, like I just see that darkness when I, when I, and when you open up this record, it's black, black and white, but black, glossy. Uh, the album has, that, so right away, you know, I'm feeling like the, this album is a little more morose. It's not happy, happy Beatles, a little more mature, a little road weary. Uh, it's not, I want to hold your hand, you know, so they seem like they're breaking out there a little bit. Lennon is still the, it's the third song in a row where, Lennon still feels like he's the lead singer on this, right? Uh, so it's still feeling like uh, Lennon's vibe going on here. He seems like he's maturing, you know, another mature song. Uh, even collaboration between Lennon and McCartney, Babies in Black, mm. you talked about Road Weary, was written in a hotel room while the Beatles were on tour in the summer of 64. So they got together and they wrote this song. Um, where is it? McCartney says this. Babies in Black we did because we like waltz time. Uh, we used to do, if you got to make a fool of somebody, a cool 3-4 blues thing. Uh, and other bands would notice that and say, shit, man, you're doing something in 3-4. So we'd gotten known for that. And I also uh, think that John and I wanted to do something bluesy, a bit darker, more grown up, rather than just straight pop. It was more Babies in Black as in mourning. Our favorite color was black. Black as well. Well, there you go, right? Yeah, the Beatles. They just wore black back then yeah. for all the psychedelic yeah. clothes. Um, yeah, there you go, right? Yeah. Uh, and they loved the song. Uh, it was a staple of their live set right up until their final show at Candlestick Park in San Francisco. Wow. So they, they liked the song. They okay. liked playing it. You ever played this one? Yeah, on piano. I, play, I, I don't know why I always play it on piano. Oh, really? Yeah. What, what is your first... I mean, I know you're a multi... What's your uh, first instrument? Guitar. It is. Guitar okay. is what? Uh, yeah. Rhythm or lead? 
I'm a yeah rhythm rhythm, rhythm okay. guitar player. Okay, yeah, you yeah. and you and John like the rhythm guitar. Yeah, like that, John Lennon was my yeah he was my hero. Did, how do you rate him as a rhythm guitar player? Great, I loved. Oh my god, you see that? Yeah. Well, I love how he planks himself down in that stance and holding the Rickenbacker there. You know, you know, uh, in the wrist. I mean, you listen in on those uh, on his on his right hand technique. He, he was a great rhythm guitar player. Yeah. Absolutely. Hey, way off topic, but mm-hmm. uh, but fa- fairly recently, from you know, with the, from the, not far from the date we're recording this, uh, Canada lost Gordon Lightfoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of rhythm guitar players, uh, what uh, what are your what are your memories of Gordon Lightfoot? Um, Gordon Lightfoot is my Sunday morning music like every Sunday or Saturday morning coffee and Gordon Lightfoot so it was a big loss my father's favorite songwriter you know it means I don't know it's something about Gordon Lightfoot and just reminds me of my father he's passed 30 years ago my father and he uh, my mother gave my father a, a 1967 Vox 12 string when they came to Toronto in the mid 60s for their wedding present and Gordon Lightfoot was my father's favorite songwriter Back uh, back then, and uh, so that twelve string Vox is still in my in my house, and you know, uh, it, it just reminds me of, like Dad, Gordon Lightfoot, Canada. It all comes together. It's like that means I don't know. The weekend comes, I put on, you know, it just mellows me out. All those early records, well, all his records, yeah. And I really came to appreciate him more as I got older. You do, okay? Yeah. And it's a maturity thing, I think, with Lightfoot. Like you don't realize how great the man was, and the catalog of music sorry i keep going on here but man no, like no. he wrote he was so disciplined as a songwriter i learned so much more about songwriting as i as i got more into life but over the last 20 years and in his like on that 12 string oh. you know capo and i think on the second fret for a lot of songs and he just drives the yeah. band just drives it well you know and no drummer right they never had a drummer you don't realize there's no drummer on those records most of it till later they got very keen okay yeah later yeah. but you I love the the greatest Gord's Gold, right? They went back in and re-recorded a lot of the United Artists songs uh, that that he had done back in yeah. the '60s. I mean, I was reading about that. What was it 1975 or so? They went in and re-recorded the first side of that record. Is all just they did that in a few days, just live, uh, live off the floor, like the the rhythm guitar, the, the that trio, amazing. Yeah, love that. Ah, we had to get Lightfoot okay. in. Gotta I get know. Lightfoot in. As, as a fe- so we go from uh, a song probably Gordon Lightfoot didn't play very often. We go we go to <laughs> yeah. the next track in the album, rock and roll music. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll music. This one is a one take. What I read, I couldn't believe it. One take wonder. I think is that. Am I right on that? Uh, I'm just. I'm pouring through my notes as you you say that. Yeah. Well, just it's got the same vibe. That twist and shout. You know, I find John is just ripping it. You know, it's it's got a real great live off the floor feel. Uh, I'm glad that one's on the record. because, yeah, it's the first real rock and roll song on the record. If, you know, uh, yeah, you get that rock feel. Uh, uh, feels a little bit, bit like they're, yeah, it's a live show 
coming out. Here you go. I found it. Mm. Uh, rock and roll music was done in one complete take right. with George Martin joining the group on piano. <laughs> uh, where else do we go? Uh, it's recorded with drums and bass on track one, two guitars in the second, and Lennon's vocals on track three. Uh, and then afterwards, Lennon, Paul McCartney, and George Martin overdubbed a piano part on a Steinway together. So there's two ver- two uh, accountings of how that was done. But Lennon's vocal uh, after eight hours in the studio, and he, and he rhymes that off. During the same session where they recorded this, so before they, they got to this last, uh, uh-huh. they recorded Kansas City, Hey, 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 uh, Mr. Moonlight, I Feel Fine, and I'll Follow the Sun. Wow. Not a bad day. No, right? There you go. <laughs> you know, what these guys did in three months, I'm lucky to get a rehearsal in. Um, you know. The great story with this, Chris, is that so they're out there busy. They're trying to get this album done for Christmas, and they're 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 honing in, uh, they're shoehorning in little recording dates between UK tour dates. So they're trying to get this thing done. They're short on material uh, because, it, as I mentioned earlier, they were pretty busy in 1964. So they go in and they rattle off four cover versions, the last three in a row at the end of a nine-hour recording session. Uh, so they had to get some stuff done. The three in a row at the end of the day were everybody's trying to be my baby rock and roll music words of love boom 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 Mm -hmm. so not bad no not a bad day's work um so i always ask guests this rock and roll music chuck berry's original version beatles version oh (laughs) yeah beatles i guess (laughs) no Sorry, Chuck. (laughs) i don't know that that's being biased i mean because i unfortunately i probably heard rock and roll music more than Chuck's version because it's just, uh, again, right? The Beatles plastered everywhere. Um, no, uh, yeah, rock and roll music, John's version. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, for, for your album, I was fascinated in hearing you talk in an interview about how the record was made, and you mentioned it earlier. Uh, the quote I had written down was, by me piecing together a record at night when the kids were sleeping and everybody was quiet, and I'd just go down to the living room at my piano uh, and laptop and layer up the songs. Mm-hmm. Is that the first record you've ever made that way? It's the first full record I'd done that like that. Yeah. With the runners I would do take some stuff home but and and do it like that. But this whole record was sitting at a piano mostly. Uh not a proper studio. Uh but you know, the engineer who took on the record after and he made it sound, you know, took it to that next level and made me made me sound good. So thanks to Christian Leslie. Yes. So right. Shout out to him. Okay. It doesn't sound like it, you made it in your front room. No, I know. A laptop, like an old Mac. I mean, I know. Like, you'd think I'd have myself together and get a little more uh, professional here, but, you know, I... I Again, right? Got kids to feed. Um, Now, I kept it simple. It was about capturing the moment. Now, now, did it maybe, I I don't know how, I know you like the Beatles. Are you a big McCartney fan? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, did it make you maybe have a bit of an appreciation for those two McCartney albums that he did, where he did them the same way you did, in the front room with a a recording machine? Yeah, right. So, yeah, like McCartney, the self-titled. Yeah, definitely channel Paul, trying to channel Paul McCartney or, you know, Pete Townsend or people, you know, just guys I always looked up to uh, for that inspiration to like, okay, let's do this. We, I, I, I can figure out how to play, to play this little part here by myself. 
It took about 100 takes, but, uh, you know, that's the beauty of not having to use tape. I just use, you know, go back and forth with my my mouse. Same thing, but different, right? I mean, McCartney was plugging guitars directly into the back of a Studer reel-to-reel. And you can, you know, you could, uh, I gather you were essentially plugging stuff into your computer. That's right, using plug-ins. Yeah, Yeah, that's right, synthetic. Uh, Back to side one of Beatles for Sale, and I'll follow the sun. Uh, You like this one? I like this one. It's it's pretty uh, innocent. You can tell it's a. I'm pretty sure uh, that's a that's a McCartney tune. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, he said he wrote that when he was like 16. Am I right on that? You are all over it. Uh, yeah. the, the quote I have from him: I wrote that in my front parlor oh. on Fourthland Road, boyhood home in Liverpool. I was about 16. To see I've gone For tomorrow may rain So I'll follow the sun Someday you'll know I was the one But tomorrow may rain So I'll follow the sun uh, I'll Follow the Sun was one of those very early ones. I seem to remember writing it just after I'd had the flu. Uh, and I had that cigarette. You know, I smoked when I was 16. You know, that cigarette, the the, the one that doesn't taste good after you've been sick. Uh, and, uh, you know, I remember standing in the parlor with my guitar, looking out through the lace curtains of the window and writing that one. Wow. Yeah. All right, uh, so 16. So probably six, seven years before. And that's probably it felt like a lifetime. Um, it's a it's a beauty. It's a pretty little song. I think George Martin also said it was one of his favorites on the record. I read that recently, so I was surprised by that. But you know, that's McCartney. That's pure McCartney. Great, mel- you know, melody writer. Well, and, and you you know, uh, maybe a testament to the fact that they'd had a really busy year, uh, and maybe there wasn't a lot of material sitting around. I mean, it was their right. second album within eight months right. of, of doing Hard Day's Night. Right, and like you said earlier, like, she's a woman and I feel fine. I mean, they didn't even put, this, put those two on the record. So they wrote, you know, 10 songs for the record, if you want to look at it from that point of view. But, yep. you know... Uh, so talk about a bit, you know, pressure to to produce. So I'm kind of lukewarm on this one. It's not my favorite, but you, you, Which, I think you maybe like it a bit more than me. I follow the sun. Yeah, I'll follow the sun. No, I'm a little lukewarm on it too. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to be generous. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I find you know, like I said, I find a little. Uh, they were beyond that by that point. I don't think McCartney probably. I think they were probably you know never had much choice to cut it. Next song. To me, when I talk to Beatle fans, it divides people. Yes. Uh, second last song inside one. come down great song or not so great okay yeah it's one of my least favorite Beatle recordings <laughs> right with you I, okay I I, I I would go so far as to say probably the worst song of the Beatles recording output okay but yeah now that, that might be a bit strong no I, I agree I think you probably I, I say most people share that share that with you 
What I don't get is that they recorded Leave My Kitten Alone. And I finally heard that a few years ago, that cut of Leave, I think it's Leave My yeah, Kitten yeah. Alone. I love it. I love that track. And I think cutting Mr. Moonlight and putting that in its place would have been a much better decision. But that's, I, did, I didn't do the running order. Yeah, Mr. Moonlight, just a kind of a wacky, it, do, it doesn't, the Hammond organ, I don't, it's, it's kind of loungy, a yeah. little bit, a little bit kitschy, not big on it. Uh, the original, uh, the original Mr. Moonlight uh, was a B-side of an R&B hit, Dr. Feelgood, by Dr. Feelgood and the Intern, so it's a cover version, uh, written by a guy named Roy Lee Johnson, and from what I could find out, uh, Mr. Roy Lee Johnson is still with us uh, uh, at the ripe old age of uh, Brown. I think he's in his mid-80s. He wrote the song when he was in high school and the money that he made after the Beatles covered it, <laughs> it financed a long and successful career. Uh, the last album he released was an album called When a Guitar Plays the Blues in 1998. So, oh, that's excellent. Can you <laughs> Right, to be a kid. and Well, he mustn't have been too old then and probably in his... Early twenties when 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 they covered this, so uh, good for him. No, no, and and, and just well, probably I'm guessing. I don't know. You I mean you know the music business better? Does it a check just kind of shows up in the mail one day? Well, I guess back then it would be a check, but now you, yeah, you just get your 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 so can uh, uh, royalties deposited every three months. So yeah, I, I, I would. Say that was a nice check for him. I, I would think he would, you know, if he even... He's still getting checks, I guess. Oh, he would be. Yeah. 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 Or, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Fab Four, for uh, for using my song. I would. Wow. I mean, what would the equivalent be today? I guess maybe getting one of your songs on a Drake album. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Wait, the Weeknd or Drake or... Uh, he may, he uh, may like your new record and cover one. Yeah. You know, okay. Maybe. Let's put that out let's right now. <laughs> Come on, Drake. You, you can re, uh, redo any of these tracks. I'm open. I own the masters, so I have no. You have no no, no red tape to get through that here. Would be, uh, wouldn't that be something? Yeah. yeah that'd be something. <laughs> Honey, we're moving to a bigger house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Last song on side one. I, as much as I don't like Mr. Moonlight, I love this one. Kansas City. Hey, 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 hey. McCartney finally gets to open up, right? It's the first yeah. track that McCartney gets to do his, uh, get himself going here. So yeah, right. So it's a Lieber uh, Stoller yep. song, right? And little Richard did the hey, hey, hey. Um, yeah, McCartney, classic McCartney, you know, classic McCartney belting it. Uh, he, 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 had, he had a great voice just like Lennon. Love it. You know, Lennon and McCartney, I mean, two 
guys who just fed off each other, right? You could see, you could feel the push and pull, right? In, in, inspiring each other. So this was McCartney's chance to uh, step it up on the record, I feel. Uh, the Beatles saw Little Richard perform the medley. Uh, Little Richard, would did, he did a cover of Kansas City, and when he did it in concert, he'd do it as a medley with his own song, Hey, 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 Hey. Right. Uh, and the Beatles saw him do that in around 1962, and they, and they adopted it for their own set. Um, just as a note of trivia, they performed twice with Little Richard in England in October of that year, and they became friends with him during a two-week stint at the Star Club in Hamburg uh, in November of 1962. McCartney says, I could do Little Richard's voice, which is a wild horse screaming thing. It's like an out-of-body experience. You have to leave your current sensibilities and go about a foot above your head to sing it. You have to actually go outside yourself. It's a funny little trick, and when you find it, it's very interesting. <laughs> that's what McCartney says. Yeah, well, that's... That says it all. Uh, and uh, great little bit of trivia. Mm. Wasn't in their set um, by 1963. They, they played it back in the Cavern days. But uh, in what city do you think that when on they went their first American tour uh, and they played there on September 17th, 1964, I wonder what city that was where they decided to dust it off? Atlanta. Might have been Kansas City. Uh, and it apparently just went over a storm. Um, so and then they, and then about a month later, when they were short for material recording this album, it was uh, it, it was pulled out, and they did it. Um, they recorded a second take, uh, but it was nailed in the one take. Uh, so oh, no, I said Atlanta. You know, I, I I could have said Kansas City. That would have been really easy. But you know, I thought maybe it's a little Richard from Atlanta. I thought that's you know I thought maybe that would have been in tribute to him. I mean, I I don't I don't play well. Uh, never played live. I got to think this would be a lot of fun to play live. Oh yeah. Well, my mother-in-law. Shout out to uh, Doreen Gale. Um, she every time we're back visiting, uh, she gets she, that's one of her songs on the guitar. Oh, oh really? Yeah, on the kids, like, I'm going to Kansas City. It, here I come. It, is yeah. your is your whole family musical? My like your dad my, played. You said my dad played guitar and my uncle played guitar. Um, but my wife's family is very musical. Uh, they're West Coast. Newfoundland uh, uh, people and the Benoit family is uh, part of that, uh, part of her family. And Emile Benoit, the fiddle player, is a Newfoundland legend, you know. So there's music her mother played, you know, a bit of fiddle, and all her uncles, and there's, there's a lot of music on Paula's side. Um, yeah. Here's here's where I'm going. I'm going off piece here. I'm going off off topic. But uh, just as I have you here, and you're from Newfoundland, and there are so many great artists from Newfoundland, is there a distinct musical vibe culture distinct to that part of Canada that makes it unique from everywhere else? In your opinion? Yes. In my opinion, yeah. We definitely have the. We have our French, and we have our English, and Irish. And Scottish roots, so there's definitely a distinct Newfoundland music sound. I mean, you can also say right on up through. I mean, you, you, Newfoundland country music had its, you know, going back to the 50s and 60s, and Newfoundland rock and roll. We, we borrowed from just as from the Beatles and whoever, but kind of make it our own. But the Newfoundland music is there's definitely a vibe. There's definitely a Newfoundland, uh, definitely a, you know, the fiddle music on the West Coast, like I said, uh, and the French influence. 
And Ron Hines, he's one of our, you know, he's our poet laureate. <laughs> Ron Hines, the great Ron Hines, uh, rest in peace. Uh, Ron was is known as one of our greatest you know, songwriters. All right, so, so you have those influences. The Beatles were influenced by many, including Little Richard, mm-hmm. right? You know, the McCartney especially. I've, I've read of you referencing Todd Rundgren, Teenage Fan Club. Uh, where did the Beatles land in your, your sort of scope of influences? Okay, you know, the Beatles were my, were everything to me when I was, uh, you know, from 12 up to 15, 16, you know, and then I started getting more into Dylan and uh, into Towns Van Zandt and the Texas songwriters and moving on from there. But the Beatles were the reason I wanted to be a musician. I, you know, growing up in St. John's and I, I felt something about it, like just kind of connected to, to the Beatles in some weird way of feeling... You know, just foggy, rainy, isolated Newfoundland. Yeah. Like w- listening to the Beatles, and I remember watching the documentary, The Complete Beatles. Oh, yeah, yep. Yeah. And okay. uh, seeing that for the first time, and seeing Liverpool for the first time as a young boy, like seeing seeing the footage of it, and I just felt, well, these guys came from like you know a, a seaport town, and uh, I just felt some kind of uh, connection that like you know, there's something about that. The long winters. Playing music was something we all, you know, a lot of my friends and I, we did, you know, it was a way to get through the long, cold winters and uh, something to make your own, you know, start a band. Bands were, you know, something we all did uh, back in the late 80s. I remember school, it was something uh, back in junior high, playing music was, uh, you know, something. Uh, that's, that's how you got girls. cool to be in that, a band. That's how you got you girls, know, you're in the band. And the Beatles inspired me to be, like, <laughs> let's do that. Like, yeah, these guys are, you know, this is cool, man. Like, you know, well, so, so, in the band. And so speaking of influences, right, listening to your, your new record, mm-hmm. uh, Split Down the Middle, um, out now, available at all streaming platforms, uh, yes. or available to buy. Uh, opening track, uh, Woman Understand. Mm-hmm. First listen for me, I heard a real John Lennon influence. I love you piano song yeah. but I mean you know I, I, I souped it up a bit and uh, you know uh, added some more stuff on it but you know it started out definitely that John Lennon that early 70s uh, vibe yeah. classic Ono band you know uh, big influence yeah right Lennon comes out in my timbre of my voice sometimes too I, I always felt more relate, relatable to his approach to singing right and my tone and and the simplicity, Lennon wasn't probably as proficient as McCartney. So, I, I'm, you know, I, am I wrong in saying that? But, you know, McCartney was a just crazy musician. Lennon was a great musician, but simple piano chords. I'm a simple piano player. Again, right, I could relate to that. Relate to Lennon. It's a lovely song. Thank uh, you. It's a woman understand uh, and opening cut on the new album, Split Down the Middle. So let's take a break here and we will get you back next time to talk about side two of Beatles for Sale. Chris, thanks. Hey, thanks for having me.
Uh, so keep your ears peeled for the second part of our conversation. That will be available shortly wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Uh, in fact, wherever it is that you got this very podcast that you are listening to. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes for that matter, please consider making a donation to support the ongoing production of this podcast. Any little bit helps. And you can offer your support if you visit the website and click on the Support the Walrus button. I use the money to offset uh, some of my hard costs, which are mainly hosting uh, what little bit of advertising that I do. Uh, and uh, that, that about it just uh, covers my costs. Uh, along those lines, a big walrus thank you to a returning supporter, Ernie Pinn, who recently made a very generous donation. He sent along a nice note with his donation as well. Uh, Ernie says, I was glad to see a season three show up in my podcast. Your show is always entertaining and informative, well worth the effort you put into it. Thanks. Well, a big thanks right back at you, Ernie. Uh, it's a labor of love for me. I've mentioned that many, many times, but it makes me love it just a little bit more when I know that you love it and enjoy listening to it. And again, if you'd like to show your support, if you can afford it, then please go to the website and click on the Support the Walrus button. Thank you for that in advance. You can follow this podcast on all of the usual socials on Twitter and Instagram. I can be found at the handle Romanuk Paul. On Facebook, you can do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can email me at the.romicast at gmail.com. Positive reviews and shares on your social channels also help out. They just spread the word. Get more people listening uh, makes the effort worth it for sure. Uh, that is it for now for this episode. Until next time, I'm Paul Romanuk. So long. One, two, three, four. Do you ever get tired of being?